0: The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Amen. Amen. May that be our prayer as we look to God's Word now. The Word of God this morning comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, page 811, if you're using the Pew Bible, and we'll look at verses 1 through 18 Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. Let's worship the Lord by listening carefully and giving good attention to this, the public reading of his word. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you amen that's further reading of god's word let's pray together the grass withers and the flower falls O lord but your word endures forever and ever we bless you and praise you that we can be here before you this this morning once again to receive that word we ask that we we do so with your blessing upon us. Come to us, we pray. Open up our minds to understand and our hearts to receive the unfathomable riches of your truth, which is hidden in Christ Jesus, now revealed to us. Lord God, enable us then more faithfully to walk in a manner worthy of your grace. Grant this morning that we might more fully lay, of that, lay hold of that eternal life to which you have called us in him, our blessed Savior. It's in his name we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, no one wants to be thought of as or be called a hypocrite. A hypocrite—what an ugly thing to be called! What an ugly word! That—that word, uh, hypocrite, comes from the Greek word hypocrites which comes from the ancient theater where the actors wore masks on their faces as they played their different roles. They were acting. If you were a hypocrite, Hippocrates, you were pretending to be a person whom you were not truly. That's what a hypocrite is, right? Someone who pretends to be something which they are not. And on the stage, it was a commendable thing to be have that as your skill, to be a good hypocrite, as it were, to be a good actor when you were honest about the fact that you were doing so that was a good thing but it's not a good thing to be a a hypocrite off the stage in real life is it we call out politicians for being hypocrites right we say well that governor pretends to be concerned about the spread of the virus Uh, publicly he calls for a ban on gatherings and a mask mandate but privately he holds a party and no one's wearing masks even he isn't wearing a mask What a hypocrite. A true actor, right? Acting one way in private, but out in public, putting on a mask, literally and figuratively. What irony. What hypocrisy. Or maybe he claims to be concerned about the climate crisis and carbon emissions, and yet he tools around in his own private jet. What a hypocrite. Or just so we're not picking on only one side of the political aisle this morning, we might say, well, that one acts like he's so concerned about upholding traditional family values, protecting the sanctity of marriage, and yet he just ran off with his secretary, left his wife. What a hypocrite. Well, Jesus warned about hypocrisy. In fact, we see in our text that he warned about the very worst kind of hypocrisy. We see it as we continue in his sermon on the mount, his teaching of the the ethics of the kingdom. We see that he condemns the pseudo righteousness the false piety of the hypocrites they claimed to be zealous to give honor and praise unto God but in truth in so doing they were seeking honor and praise for themselves he's already condemned as we have seen such sins as murder adultery lying revenge seeking last week we we considered the sin of of loving only your neighbor while hating your enemy and in condemning all of these sins, he's focused not only on the outward conduct, he's really focused on the heart. Well, that's certainly what is in view as we think about the sin of hypocrisy this morning. Our message this morning is this that our Lord condemned false and hypoc- hypocritical righteousness, and he contrasted it with that true righteousness with which the Father is pleased. This morning, we're going to unpack that message by noting. Four things about our Lord's teaching. We're going to consider, first, the sin to be avoided. Secondly, the obedience commended. Thirdly, we're going to consider briefly the uh, the uh, practice of true prayer. And then lastly, we are going to consider the, the reward promised. So converse, consider, uh, consider first, then, the sin which is to be avoided. You can see why I chose to include this entire text all the way to verse 18 notice the the basic framework of the passage we have in verse 1 kind of an introductory exhortation and then we see it illustrated by three matching contrasts verses 2 through 4 5 through 6 and then verses 16 through 18 our lord shows us the wrong way and then the right way to practice Righteousness, and he does so by speaking to three common religious activities giving to the needy, praying, and then fasting. Now, we also have the extended teaching on prayer there in verses 7 through 15. As I mentioned, we'll look at, look at that very briefly for our third point. I think there's an important point we can make in the broader context. But then Pastor Holse is going to return and preach uh, again, focus, focusing particularly on verses 7 through 15 and having us look at what is, of course, known as the Lord's Prayer. But, but, but that verse 1, introductory exhortation, brings with a warning. It uh, begins with a warning. Don't miss the warning. Beware, our Lord says, Note that well. Take care. Surely our Lord reminds us that the sin which he addresses in this text is a sin to which we are all susceptible. Dare I say we all commit the sin we look at this morning. What was this sin of the hypocrites? Well, again, they were, they were motivated not by a sincere desire to do the will of God, to glorify God by imitating him and all of his glorious attributes no instead they were practicing their righteousness in order to be seen by men and in so doing again they were really seeking to seek the glory for themselves so it was with their giving to the needy verse 2 the blowing of the trumpet probably meant metaphorically there but whether whether in the synagogue or out in the streets when they gave their giving was attention seeking behavior they wanted to be sure that their charitable acts were seen and heard. And again, the issue here is the motive. Why did they give? Well, near the end of verse two, we see that answer, that they may be praised by others. The Greek word there is doxodzo, from which we get the word doxology. So rather than Rather than giving to the needy in order to doxologize, that is to give glory to God, they were giving in order themselves to receive glory. And so it was what they're praying. Verse 5, the middle of the verse, it says they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. And then jumping down to verse 16, we see that it was the same With their fasting. Think about that. Fasting, surely there's something that should have remained a private matter, but no, in a sense, they they sought to blow the trumpet, as it were, even to announce that they were fasting. How did they do it? I suppose they would have loved to possess the spiritual gift of being able to make their stomachs growl on demand, right? Very loudly. Uh, that, that was the kind of spirituality that the, the hypocrites practiced, but no, when when they fasted, it says that they, they made themselves look gloomy or swollen that 's the idea here. They disfigured their faces, they, they purposely made themselves look as ugly as they could, unsightly, so that everyone knew that they were fasting. It kind of reminds me that the teaching on fasting in particular uh, reminds me of an experience. When I was in seminary, I arrived early for class, walked into the student lounge before the 8 a.m. class, and there was a big box of donuts sitting there. Some kind soul had decided to, to feed the poor, starving seminary students. That was a great day in seminary when there were free donuts before class. Well, there we were enjoying, and another classmate walked in, and we welcomed him over to join us, and he said, oh, I can't. I would really love one, but you see, I'm fasting. I suddenly felt very unspiritual as I was stuffing my face with a chocolate glaze, right? But I remember thinking, what a, what a blatant violation of the command of Christ. Doesn't he see this? And It is possible that his motives were more pure than I assumed that they were, and I'll speak to that. But as surely as we know our own sinful hearts, I think we need to acknowledge that there's, there's something inside us that would just love for us to know in that very context. Just for everyone to know how spiritual we are. Everyone to know that we're fasting. What a super spiritual person that person uh, must be, right? So you could have simply said, no, thank you. And let everyone assume you've already eaten or you're just not in the mood for a donut. It would have, no one would have given it a thought he chose instead, for one reason or another, to take what, what could have been left a very private matter and suddenly make it somewhat public for everyone to know. And I think it certainly ought to caution us and warn us. Friends, we are by nature self-exalting, self-glorifying sinners. We are those who seek our own glory. That's what Adam did in the garden. He sought to exalt himself as God rather than obey and seek to give God the glory and that's what all of his fallen sons and daughters do as depraved sinners in him and that's exactly what we do every time we sin isn't sin to a, to fall short of the glory of God to fail to give God glory and instead to seek glory for ourselves and we do it even in committing sin before us this morning seminary students or not to think that we can take a, a religious act like giving to the needy or praying or fasting and, prom- uh, and perform it for the purpose of promoting ourselves rather than God, exalting ourselves rather than our God. We are sinners. We are sinners with a sin that goes deep down into our hearts. Friends, in every way appropriate to you this morning, hear these words and let them cut deeply down into your heart let them show you your sin but let them then show you uh, the the beauty of Christ your desperate need for him we are great sinners but we have a wonderful Savior be reminded of that this morning I hope you see that especially if you're here this morning and you don't know the Savior if you're one who's never come to, to Christ never trusted in him. You don't know him as your Lord and Savior. I hope you can see the beauty of one who came into this sin-cursed world to save such self-exalting, self-glorifying sinners as you. I pray that you will come to him now, that you will come to him in true repentance. Cry out to him saying simply, Lord Jesus, it's true. I'm a sinner. Save me, forgive me, and receive me as your own the wonderful good news is that for all who come in faith, God will not deny you. Jesus promised that whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And I would invite you to come to him today, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And Christian, may the Lord Jesus become more precious to you and to me this morning as we think about this sin. Jesus Christ the son of david the son of abraham he alone is the one who is 100% without this sin of hypocrisy and remember that this is part of matthew's gospel the good news the revelation of him who he is his person his work his kingdom that glorious kingdom which has broken into this sin cursed world his christ jesus his was that that perfect righteousness that act of righteousness he's the one who came not seeking his own glory but who the one who came seeking only the glory of the father and he did so not by exalting himself but by humbling himself by lowering himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death dying for our sins so that we might be forgiven and that we might be counted righteous justified, our sins forgiven, and our persons clothed with that, that righteousness which we could never have had of ourselves, that free gift given to us by his grace, righteousness imputed to all who receive it, who all who receive him by faith alone. And in union with him, then we are made heirs of this kingdom of righteousness, In union with him, not only does he justify us, but he also sanctifies us. Let's think about that as we move to our next point this morning. Not only does our our Lord show us the sin to be avoided, but we see, secondly, the obedience commended. And let this remind us of the true power of the Holy Spirit moving us to true obedience as we consider the command of Christ here, King Jesus would, would empower his disciples into true, spirit-empowered, sanctified obedience. Sanctification is real. Jesus teaches you how you ought to give and pray and fast. With respect to the giving, what do we see in verses 3 through 4? But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Perhaps this, this language about hiding the activity of one hand from the other hand might be kind of an intentional allusion to Paul's words about the church being the body of Christ. The members are different parts of the body. When we give as appropriate, we're to hide our conduct, hide our deeds from others. To, to piggyback off, off of the uh, the donut, don, donor illustration, ironically, with respect to what I said earlier about my classmate ironically that kind giver chose to remain completely anonymous bless his or her heart and, and and that's the kind of giving that our lord commends giving that is done in secret not for the purpose of drawing attention to ourselves note note that it's the complete opposite of the hypocrites who are blowing trumpets as it were jesus commends that giving which is done in secret, and the same is true with praying. In contrast with the loud, public praying, what do we see? Verse six says, "But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret." And the same is true with fasting. Look again down at verses seventeen through eighteen. It says, "But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may be, may not be seen by others." but by your father who is in secret. So our Lord was saying, do the complete opposite of the hypocrites, the complete opposite of those who were purposely trying to make themselves look as bad as they could. No, freshen up, right? Do your best to to, to look good so as to hide the fact that you are fasting. Just, just, Just a few words as an aside here. We could preach a whole sermon about fasting, but a few words about fasting, interestingly, we find that there is no explicit command in the New Testament to fast, but our Lord's words here certainly seem to suggest that his disciples, his followers, would be fasting. What is the purpose of fasting? It seems always to be joined to prayer. Calvin writes about the purpose of fasting, that it is to to render ourselves more alert and disencumbered for prayer, J.C. Ryle writes that that fasting serves to bring the body into subjection to the spirit. In the Bible, it seems that that fasting was appropriate and even called for for, uh, on certain special occasions. We think of David fasting when his child was sick. We think of Daniel fasting at the, the time when... His life and the life of all the wise men in Babylon were in jeopardy. They'd be destroyed unless he could solve the the, the mystery, so to speak. And so he fasted, prayed and fasted. We think about Esther fasting before she went into King Ahasuerus. Even in the New Testament, Paul and Barnabas fasted when they appointed elders. Of course, we saw in Matthew's gospel that our Lord fasted and was tempted by the devil as he was about to uh, to begin his public ministry, our confession in chapter twenty-one on religious worship and the Sabbath day says in paragraph five that that solemn fastings are in their several times and seasons to be used in a holy and religious manner. So sometimes, even in our denomination, the OPC, we may call upon the people to fast in order to pray for something particularly pressing or important. Now, some practice regular private fasting, and on that, I think there's wisdom in what J.C. Ryle writes, commenting on this very passage when he suggests that it should be left to personal discretion whether to fast or not. It is a matter, he writes, in which everyone must be persuaded in his own mind. But here's the important thing, and he continues, he writes... Only one thing must never be forgotten. Those who fast should do it quietly, secretly, and without ostentation. That is not for show, right? He writes, let them not appear to men to fast. Let them not fast to man, but to God. Again, it's important, I think, to point out that the the real issue here is what is the motive? I should say in fairness to that seminary classmate of mine it's possible with respect to his announcing that he had been fasting I suppose it's possible that he had truly weighed before the Lord his actions his words in this regard perhaps he was seeking to model godliness in order to encourage others in their practice of godliness obviously one purpose of godliness is to serve as an example for others we think of first Timothy 4 verse 12 and Paul's command to Timothy to set the believers, an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. But again, we must be so careful that our motive there is not self-serving. We're not seeking our own glory, but God's glory. And stated positively, as Ryle rightly says, we are to perform our acts of righteousness unto him, unto him, Unto the Father. How many times do we see that wonderful word in our text this morning? The Father. The Father. In fact, it's not just the Father. It's your Father. We see it eight times. Perform your righteous acts not unto men, but unto your Father. We are to pray unto him. Our giving is to be done as unto him. Our fasting is to be done so as to be seen by him. So it is with all Christian obedience. We are to do what we do as unto him, as unto the Lord. Yes, there's that secondary purpose of it being, yes, for the benefit of others. And yes, when it's appropriate for for it to be seen by others, surely it should be exemplary. But as such, it should never be performed in an attention-seeking manner. Ryle used that word quietly. It makes me think think of a sports illustration we could use. For those of you who are basketball fans, maybe you enjoy watching basketball, perhaps one time or another you may have heard a commentator commenting on the game suddenly say, wow, that player has had a quiet 20 points. You ever heard that? A quiet 20 points. What does that mean? Well, it means he's likely not the kind of flashy player who comes down and makes the thunderous dunk, or the the buzzer-beating three-pointer that causes the crowd to erupt, not the star player who tends to get all of the attention, but the one who works hard, maybe grabbing rebounds and putting them back in or finding other ways to score and and contributes to the team. And, And suddenly you don't realize it, and you look on the scorecard, and wow, he scored 20 points, and it was hardly noticed at all, a quiet 20 points. In some ways, I think that's what Christian obedience is to be like, right? We're to be quietly obedient. Let this encourage those of you who are introverted or just maybe a bit more shy. You know, we're all different. We have our different personalities. We have our different gifts. Maybe you're more of a quiet person. Well, the Bible commends quietness, doesn't it? Paul commanded the Thessalonians to aspire to live quietly. First Thessalonians chapter 4 Verse 11, or he wrote to Timothy that believers are to, I think we heard it in this morning's prayer, to lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. First Timothy 2, 2 and 3. Of course, the context there is to be praying for kings and all, praying for the salvation of, of unbelievers who see us. And, of course, we're to seek to live our lives in such a way as to adorn the gospel, make it attractive to those unbelievers. And yet, in terms of our motives, ultimately, with respect to our works of righteousness, we're to be content if they go completely unnoticed by the world, if they go completely unseen by anyone but by our Father who is in heaven. Note the repeated language of that description of God. They're not only as your father, but, but, but we see those words together, the words in secret. See it once in verse 4, twice in verse 6, again twice in verse 18. Your father who sees in secret. That was my sermon title. Your father who sees in secret or, or your father who is in secret. Interesting. In terms of our ultimate motive we we perform our acts of righteousness as if there were as if there were no one else around at all as if we were in a secret place all alone with our heavenly father performing our righteousness unto him alone not the, Is not that not the way that jesus lived his life i suppose part part of the beauty of the of the obedience of jesus is that there's a sense in which no one else saw what he was doing isn't that true he certainly told them. There were times when he told them what he'd be doing, and they didn't understand. They, they rebuked him for it. That's what happened when Peter, when he told the disciples he would be going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. He was even rebuked by Peter. They, they, they saw what he was doing, but they weren't able to see with spiritual eyes. In a sense, his, his mission remained secret until after his resurrection. No one understood that his every step was a step Towards Jerusalem, where he would go and he would suffer, he would die, he would lay down his life for you and me. He would die for our sins, and no one could look into his heart and see that his heart was a heart of perfect, pure love and zealous devotion. He did all that he did to be seen by his God. He was seen by the Father. We praise God that no one else could see what the Father saw, and the Father saw what was done in secret. And he did indeed reward it openly by raising him from the dead. And we praise God for that. As we move for our third point, the third thing which I wanted us to see this morning in our Lord's teaching about righteousness is we see the practice of true prayer. As I mentioned already, what I'll say this morning will just be by way of sort of wetting our appetite for Much more we'll see next time. I do think, however, there's a very important point that needs to be made about the purpose of prayer. One of the reasons that God has given us prayer, particularly that prayer we call the Lord's Prayer. The prayer he taught to his disciple. See it as such a powerful remedy against the sin of hypocrisy. One thing we should say in passing, noting verse 7. Note what it says in verse 7. It says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, note this, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Notice that the sin of living for the praise of others is connected to the sin of thinking that, that by our works we can somehow earn God's favor. You see that? The thinking there seems to be not not only people, this is the way a hypocrite will think, not only will people be impressed with me, but but God will be impressed with me. He'll see my many words and he will accept me. He will receive my prayers. Surely he'll give me what I'm asking. You can see the the great danger of hypocrisy connected, that danger of self-trust as if we're somehow earning our way into heaven. But our Lord has given us this prayer is, is such a precious remedy against such self-trust. Dear Christian, as you live in communion with the Lord, as you pray this prayer that, that Christ taught you to pray, by the grace of Christ, this will be a means of putting to death that sin of hypocrisy in you. Our Lord teaches us in this prayer, to whom we ought to pray. Right? We're not praying to people. We're praying to our Father. It says, our Father in heaven and he teaches us not to seek our own praise, but the praise of his name. Hallowed be your name. He teaches us of our great need of his kingdom. We do not do his will perfectly here on earth. We certainly don't, right? But we need him to bring to us that kingdom and make, his, make us part of that kingdom and do a great kingdom work in us such that he'll, his will would be done here on earth as it is perfectly in heaven. He teaches us about humble dependence upon him, even for our daily bread, which comes only as his gracious gift to us. Give us this day our daily bread. He reminds us of our, of our sin, our constant need of forgiveness. We say, forgive, our, forgive us our debts. And it reminds us of how we so hypocritically can receive that forgiveness and turn around and be unwilling to forgive those who sin against us. Forgive us our debts as we forgive. Help us to forgive those who sin against us. It reminds us of our constant need of his grace not to fall into temptation fall into sin lead us not into temptation you see how in in every way this is a prayer so so beautifully calculated to mortify to put to death in us that self-exalting self-glorifying sin of hypocrisy that that sin even of self-trust and enables us then to to practice true righteousness by god's grace yes in our praying and in all that we do It teaches us to look away from ourselves and look up to the heavens to God, to look up to the heavens where our citizenship is and from whence we await our Savior to return. And that brings us to our last point briefly, the last thing we see about our Lord's teaching about true righteousness in contrast with that of the hypocrites, the reward promised Notice the contrast here as well. Verse 1 tells us that those who practice their righteousness to be seen by others, they will have no reward. No reward from uh, our Father in heaven. Notice those repeated words three times, verses 2 and 5 and 16. Our Lord says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. You see that? They've lived their lives for the praise of men, and that's the only reward that we'll ever receive. How sad. But note the contrast. The promise for those whose obedience by the grace of Christ is as unto the Father. Again, note the repetition three times. The end of verse 4, 6, and 18, we see those same words. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Just think about that this evening. Dear Christian, God has promised you a glorious reward in heaven. He has promised you as your eternal reward, an everlasting kingdom of glory filled with joys infinitely greater than anything in this world. Certainly far, far greater than that sinful pleasure you might derive from thinking others are thinking so well of me, right? And to think that our good works performed by the grace of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, unto God, that they will be rewarded. How is it possible? How is it possible when they come from us? And we know that we are still sinful and everything we do is defiled with sin. Well, as believers, we know the answer. We are accepted in Christ, accepted by God, through Christ, and our good works are also accepted in him. That's what our confession rightly teaches us. God looks upon our good works in his son and is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. And so we look to him. We look to him by his grace. We look to our father to give us that reward. And friends, what will be the greatest? Part of all of it, what will be the most blessed thing about that reward which God brings to us, his people? Will it not be God himself, the enjoyment of him, being in the presence of the Father, knowing, knowing that, that he is exalted and glorified by our obedience, that his, that he is pleased with us, that his smiling face is upon us, shining upon us for all Eternity Will that not be wonderful? Is that what you're longing for? Is that what you're living for? Is that what motivates you? A day will come when, when there will be no more hypocrisy. All of the masks will be torn off and gone forever. And we will live finally at last perfectly true to what we truly are, redeemed sons and daughters, children of God, children of our Heavenly Father. We'll never seek nor desire Any other glory but the the glory that goes unto him will delight forever in, in living perfectly for his glory, the glory of his great name. That's that kingdom which we long for, which he brings, and that's the kingdom which we already possess. The beautiful thing is that we already are to live according to that kingdom because we understand the kingdom is already present. Here we are, caught between that eschatological tension between the already and the not Yet, do you realize, dear Christian, how blessed you are to be able to say, here it is, the kingdom is here. Unbelievers, they don't see it. You see the Father, they don't see him. That's why they live for themselves rather than for him. But as we'll see in Matthew 13, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. Here it is, the kingdom is here. How fitting that we would live lives of secret and quiet Godliness as citizens of that great kingdom, living our lives unto the Father who we know sees in secret, looking forward to that day when we will see him and all of his glory when we see him on that last day. How could we then, in light of those who possess all that, how could we forsake that hope by turning and living to be seen by men, to be living for our own praise? Let us turn, let us forsake that sin. And let us live our lives unto our Father who sees in secret. Let's pray together. Lord God, we know that that is your desire. That is what you have commanded us. And we're thankful that you have made that, by your grace, our desire. Help us, Father, to, to put off our sin. Take your word this morning and, and, and use it in our lives and enable us to live out what we have learned. Father, we pray that you would come to us. Save us from that remaining hypocrisy which we see in our hearts and in our lives. Come to us, we pray, and fill us. Fill us with your spirit and with your word. Help us to hide that word in our hearts, O Lord, that we might not sin against you. Make us to be more like him, our precious Savior. So, Lord God, may we live our lives not before men, but may we live our lives before your blessed face, O God, and for the glory of your great name. Hear us. For we ask for this in Jesus' name, amen.